Welcome to the webinar entitled Palliative Care, Changing the Healthcare Landscape Through Emerging Models. I'm Russ Portnoy. I'm the Chief Medical Officer of MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care, and I'm the Director of the new Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care, also of MJHS. This webinar is the first of our interprofessional webinar series, and I'm happy to, to welcome you all to the series as well. The series will be putting on a live webinar every other week. Soon all of these webinars will be offering uh, continuing education credits for all of the disciplines engaged in palliative care. The topics will be pertinent to the entire interdisciplinary team. And after each uh, webinar is, uh, is given live, it will be posted on our website for a year so that those who missed the, web who missed the webinar or would like to see it again are able to attend. The website is www.mjhspalliativeinstitute.org, www.mjhspalliativeinstitute.org. The topic today is palliative care. I'd like to begin by talking about the primary clinical drivers for the emergence of this discipline really on a worldwide basis, specifically the occurrence of illness burden and the need for care in a growing population with serious or life-threatening illness. I'll then talk a few minutes about the definition of palliative care and its goals in the U.S. healthcare system, and then finally spend most of the time talking about the emerging models of palliative care, particularly community-based palliative care. Now, most people uh, in developed countries now live with chronic progressive illness prior to death. Uh, most patients, in fact, have multiple illnesses, and the disease can last many years. Uh, serious illness can lead to high illness burden and suffering on the part of the patient and the family. Uh, illness burden itself can be related to a variety of factors. It's multidimensional. It can be from distress from poorly controlled symptoms, distress from psychosocial and spiritual disturbances, confusion about care coordination, communication, decision-making, goal-setting, and finally, distress at the level of the family caregiver can, can be due uh, to um, a high level of caregiver burden and financial stress. In the U.S. healthcare system, the management of these problems associated with serious or life-threatening illness is complicated by a variety of factors. Care is complicated by evolving standards of care and best practices, by disparities in insurance status and access to care, fragmentation in care, particularly among those with advanced illness. Patients and family expectations of care can be non-aligned with the concerns of the healthcare team taking care of the patient. The healthcare team itself can be cure-oriented or focused predominantly on control of the disease rather than on the greater holistic questions related to the patient and the family suffering or illness burden. And finally, care in the United States is complicated because it is highly costly, particularly relative to the rest of the world. Indeed, in the U.S., we spend more on healthcare than any other developed country, which would be okay, potentially, if that healthcare purchased higher quality care or greater access to care. But as I'll mention in a few minutes, there's a substantial reason to believe that the high cost of care in the United States does not translate into better disease-related outcomes or less illness burden than in other countries. The increased cost of healthcare in the United States relative to the rest of the developed world is well appreciated, and it can be evaluated by looking at per capita spend or by looking at spend as a percent of GDP. Uh, here are some data from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development that shows that the per capita healthcare spending in, in the United States is more than twice 
the median spend for the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. We're about 30% more than the country closest to us in healthcare spending on a per capita basis. Now, remarkably, in this country and in other developed countries, most of the healthcare spending occurs in the care of a relatively small proportion of patients. In the United States, for example, about 5% of the Medicare population accounts for about half of the Medicare spend, just about a trillion dollars a year uh, for Medicare and Medicaid combined. Interestingly, that very high level of spending, that spending focused on the 5% uh, sickest patients, about half of that relates to patients with chronic progressive illness or patients who are close to the end of life. The other half is related to a discrete high-cost event. But if one were to look at the half of that 5%, which accounts for about 50% of the spending, one can imagine that interventions that potentially reduce the cost in that population with progressive incurable illness receiving care for a period of time culminating in end-of-life care, interventions of that nature would have a profound impact potentially on the overall spending for, the health, for healthcare in the United States. Now, as I said before, high spending for healthcare in the United States might be acceptable to our society if we had evidence that the high spending was associated with higher quality of care or broader access to care. But unfortunately, the data suggests that this is not the case. Among developed countries, the U.S. has the lowest life expectancy of birth, the highest mortality amenable to health care, and we rank last or next to last in quality, access, efficiency, equity, and healthy lives, according to the Commonwealth Report. A recent report from the Commonwealth Fund that repeat, repeated uh, this analysis demonstrated about the same findings. In addition to that, the U.S. healthcare system causes more than 100,000 deaths per year from medical errors, uh, another indication that we have a problematic system when it comes to delivering care on the front lines. Moreover, a recent report from the Institute of Medicine suggests that about 30% of the healthcare expense in the U.S., more than $750 billion per year, may be viewed as unnecessary. About $210 billion of that delivered in unnecessary services, $130 billion in services delivered inefficiently, $190 billion in excess administrative expenses, $105 billion in excessive prices, $75 billion in fraud, and $55 billion in missed opportunities for prevention. For those of you engaged in specialist-level palliative care, as you look at this list of, of expenses potentially unnecessary in the care of patients who have serious or life-threatening illness, and you think about the Core, practice in, uh, the core practices of palliative care, goal setting, coordination of care. You may see opportunity there for potentially reducing unnecessary expense in the healthcare system. Another way that, um, that the cost, the high cost of healthcare in the United States might be addressed. So the problem of illness burden in the United States is very substantial. We have an aging population like many other developed countries, and with age comes a higher prevalence of chronic progressive illness and comorbidities. And these increasing populations are experiencing increasing levels of illness burden associated with a variety of factors. The current system of care does not meet the needs of a significant proportion of patients or families, is highly variable, has significant disparities, and may increase the potential for inappropriate or unnecessary therapy. In addition to that, the current system is extremely costly but does not offer more quality 
than less, less costly systems available throughout the rest of the developed world. So the United States has been seeking solutions. And of course, there are many solutions, and healthcare now is entering a period of increasing uh, uh, reform uh, that ultimately will end up with a healthcare system quite different than the one we have now. But one of the solutions that has been the focus of increasing attention is the possibility of more access to palliative care. And for this, we need to come to some consensus about the definition of palliative care as it applies to the U.S. healthcare system. I would suggest to you that this definition makes sense, that palliative care should be viewed as an interdisciplinary therapeutic model. It's a therapeutic model, for example, like critical care is a therapeutic model. But palliative care, unlike critical care, which is focused on potentially reversible acute life-threatening illness, palliative care is a therapeutic model that's appropriate for all patients with serious or life-threatening illnesses and is focused on the relief and the prevention of suffering and illness burden for both the patient and the family from the time of diagnosis onward. Now this, this definition obviously has many elements that could potentially lead to specific decisions in terms of healthcare delivery systems that would be capable of increasing access to palliative care. Let me focus on a few of these uh, more specifically. First, palliative care has multidimensional concerns. We are concerned about uh, physical well-being, psychological and social well-being, spiritual well-being, the provision of care that's both ethical and legal, and for palliative care, the patient and the family is a unit of care. The definition suggests that palliative care starts from diagnosis and extends forward through the period of time that the patient dies and into the period of bereavement for the family if that occurs. Palliative care is not end-of-life care, obviously. End-of-life care is merely a slice of palliative care. Palliative care has a number of key objectives, and this is where the broad definition begins to be operationally focused on the needs of the U.S. healthcare system. Palliative care seeks to control symptoms. It seeks to manage psychosocial and spiritual distress. It seeks to ensure that communication supports goal setting on an ongoing basis and that patients and, and providers are engaged in informed shared decision making and advanced care planning with due regard on the part of the provider for the patient's and family's culture, religion, and other sources of variation. Palliative care is focused on pro providing practical support in the home and meeting the concrete needs of the patient and the family. Palliative care is focused on providing clinical expertise for the patient who is, has very far advanced disease and may in fact be actively dying, and for providing care that's culturally appropriate immediately after the death and adequately supportive of the needs of the family. And palliative care is focused on family support when the patient is being cared for during life and then subsequently during the period of bereavement. Now in the United States during the past 15 to 20 years, there's been an ongoing discussion about how to operationalize all of these objectives. And we here in the United States made a very explicit decision to pursue or to consider the formation of palliative care at two levels. This resonates well with the current model of health care delivery in the United States and has really um, made us one of the leaders in, internationally in terms of this structure. Now specifically I mean that palliative care can be viewed as either generalist level care, which might be considered best practices for any discipline engaged in the care of a patient with a serious or life-threatening illness. And also, it, it may be considered specialist-level practice, 
and specialist level practice is distinguished from generalist level practice by the special competencies that each individual member of an interdisciplinary team brings to the bedside and the fact that either in reality or virtually care is provided from an interdisciplinary perspective by a team. So if we are able to bring a team approach to a patient with a serious or life-threatening illness and the individuals involved have special competencies, that would be one way of, of understanding specialist level care, irrespective of the venue of care. Now in the United States, there's also been a huge amount of work to develop specialist models of palliative care and to provide increasing populations of patients with access to specialist care. More than a quarter century ago, hospice began as a federal benefit, the first managed care benefit ever created in the, in the United States. Hospice can be viewed as a, as a healthcare system that was developed to provide specialist level care to patients with far advanced illness, predominantly in the home environment. It's a regulated healthcare system. It's been highly successful in terms of touching more and more patients in that period prior to death. But it's also been problematic in the sense that for more than 20 years, the, the length of stay in hospice uh, has not increased and it's still around a median of 20 days. And because it's a capitated benefit, patients who are receiving complex and expensive disease-modifying therapies typically don't have the ability to access care. So hospice is a very important part of providing specialist level palliative care throughout the disease trajectory, but it can't at the present time um, assist in the full range of, of needs expressed by patients with serious illness and their family. And because of this, there's been the development of institution-based palliative care and more recently community-based palliative care. Institution-based palliative care began to, uh, to um, develop about 10 years ago and has been accelerating ever since. At the present time, more than two-thirds of hospitals in the U.S. have palliative care consultation programs. And it's a remarkable observation that institutions have supported the development of these palliative care programs, uh, even in hospitals that are relatively small. Now, these programs, of course, vary a great deal. Uh, they often are medically focused and typically provide relatively short-term care with limited capacity to provide transitional care into the community or integrate with, more, uh, with, with care planning that extends for longer periods of time in the community. Institution-based palliative care is, again, an important component of a comprehensive system of specialist-level palliative care that should be available throughout the U.S. healthcare system, but it can't achieve the, the coverage necessary in a population where most sick people live at home for long periods of time. Now, institution-based palliative care has emerged and has been so successful in part because it's been shown to have clinical benefit as well as potential savings uh, on healthcare costs, as I'll mention in a second. Studies indicate that inpatient palliative care does improve outcomes in terms of quality of life, patient and family satisfaction, caregiver burden, and symptom distress. Now, community-based palliative care is really in its infancy. Indeed, community-based palliative care could really be viewed as the new frontier for palliative care, and it's likely to evolve quickly as healthcare reform occurs and a larger number of patients are managed in population health models 
in which a single payer is responsible for managing the care of patients across the disease trajectory and in all venues of care. In that model, community-based palliative care integrating with institution-based palliative care and also potentially with hospice care has the capacity potentially to provide specialist level palliative care throughout the disease trajectory. Now community-based palliative care is so new that there are varied models and varied names. We don't yet really have a consensus about what constitutes specialist level palliative care in the community. Some community-based palliative care programs have been developed as upstream programs created by hospice agencies. Some have been created as products that are de delivered by home care agencies or by hospital outreach uh, underwriting the development of transitional care programs. Some community-based palliative care involve home visits, some are telephonic, and some involve telehealth. Some are led by medical providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants. Others are led by nurses or yet other models of, of care delivery. Some of the, some of the the programs are part of advanced illness management strategies that can either be viewed as case management or disease management. All of this now is occurring in the healthcare system to try to increase opportunities for care that's broad-based and holistic and situated where patients live in the community or in the nursing home. And all of these programs are now evolving as healthcare reform takes hold in the United States. Now, there are very few studies of community-based palliative care, but there are some, and, it, and those that exist do suggest that it benefits patients and families from a clinical perspective. A systematic review of controlled studies of home-based palliative care published in 2013 evaluated 23 studies, uh, which together entered about 37,000 patients and 4,000 family members, and it concluded that these programs were associated with a higher likelihood of the patient dying in the home environment, less symptom burden on the part of the patient. But these programs were not able to confirm that family grief was lessened as a result of access to community-based palliative care. So why will community-based palliative care grow? As I mentioned before, part of it relates to the quality of care. That as the population ages, illness burden will increase with the prevalence of chronic illness and the public will demand higher quality care focused on the problems that, that concern them, problems like symptom distress and family burden and fear of, of abandonment. And, and the quality and satisfaction drivers will be important for the continuing development of community-based palliative care. But in addition to this, almost without doubt, community-based palliative care will grow because of economic drivers. And in fact, it is likely that the economic drivers will be the major factor in, in continuing the momentum to provide specialist level palliative care in the community. Cost avoidance will be the key driver in these population health models of care, wherein the provider of care is the payer responsible for care across the continuum of care and will, by, and will be highly incentivized to work with specialists in palliative care if they are able to reduce the cost of care by keeping patients out of the hospital. Now importantly, cost control is not a specific objective of specialist level palliative care. I really would like to emphasize that. I feel very strongly that sometimes as we in our enthusiasm try to promote specialist palliative care as a means to reduce cost, we give the impression that reducing cost is a goal of palliative care. It is not a goal of palliative care. 
But the best practices that suffuse specialist palliative care can lead to less costly care overall, particularly informed shared decision-making based on medical realities and the patient's values and preferences, and repeated goal-setting and advanced care planning will lead some patients with advanced serious illness to decide to forego some expensive disease-modifying therapy where the, where the benefit to burden ratio may fall on the side of little benefit and the high risk of increased burden. In addition to that, our core practice in care coordination may reduce duplication of services and our, our, our uh, promotion of early intervention for symptom distress may keep some people out of the hospital because they're more effectively managed at home. All of these factors will lead to potentially reduced cost of care uh, pre predominantly by keeping patients in their home or in the nursing home and away from the more expensive setting of the hospital. Now we have some uh, data that palliative care does reduce the cost of care. For example, a whole variety of studies were done of inpatient palliative care services. Uh, these, this graph uh, reflects analyses of uh, a few studies uh, performed during the past 10 years. The green bars reflect the cost after a patient has contact with an interdisciplinary palliative care team, and the blue bars reflect the cost of usual care. And all of these analyses show cost avoidance after the contact with palliative care. We also have some data to suggest that cost avoidance occurs from ambulatory palliative care. Uh, a well-known randomized control study from Mass General evaluated an ambulatory palliative care practice in 151 patients with newly diagnosed metastatic lung cancer who were randomly assigned either to get usual care or access to the interdisciplinary palliative care team in the ambulatory environment. And as you can see from the graph, the use of IV chemotherapy declined relative to standard care, and the use of oral chemotherapy was higher within 60 days of death and then was lower as, uh, as death approached the reduced use of chemotherapy would be associated with reduced cost of care. Cost avoidance from community-based palliative care has been evaluated in several models. Uh, Aetna's telephonic compassionate care program, for example, uh, demonstrates the kind of impact that trained uh, RNs can have uh, in reaching out to patients with serious illness and attempting to address some of the problems associated with unmet palliative care needs. This program uh, realized a, an increase in hospice enrollment from 31% to 72% of patients. It, in, it decreased the inpatient days in the hospital for the cohort that received the telephonic support. ICU days were reduced, and overall there was a 22% savings in the last 40 days of life. This was a successful program for this payer, demonstrating that even if the concerns that are typically under the palliative care rubric were addressed telephonically, one might see cost avoidance that would make the program uh, cost effective. There has been a randomized control study in the Kaiser system uh, which demonstrated that those patients random, randomly assigned to get the uh, palliative care consultation in the community uh, realized a net mean savings of about $7,000 per patient over three months. The daily cost of treatment was $95 for those who received palliative care and $212 for those who didn't receive palliative care, a significant difference. The two groups had equal survival, and those patients who received 
uh, specialist palliative care input, had better quality of care and communication. And it's data like this that has made a palliative care standard in all the Kaiser Permanente markets. In my own organization, MJHS, we've also been um, piloting uh, various community-based models of palliative care, attempting to develop uh, some better idea about what the core elements are that might gain the clinical benefit and the benefit uh, that we hope to realize through cost avoidance. We have several models, and I'll just share with you uh, one of our models, the interdisciplinary high-touch model. The interdisciplinary high-touch model assigns a patient referred to our organization to an interdisciplinary team that includes a physician or a nurse practitioner, a social worker, and a, and a nurse clinical specialist. The patients receive an individualized care plan that can be modified over time. The care plan may include home visits by the physician or NP and or the social worker, telephonic care management by the RN, uh, which is typified by outreach by the telephone to address problems that are brought up by the patient or by the uh, provider who visits, access to 24-7 telephone on call, assistance with prescription medications if needed, coordination with the primary care provider and case manager, and finally, ongoing eligibility review to determine whether or not the patient may have access to hospice if that's consistent with the patient's goals at that time. We've, we've been able to pilot this high-touch uh, interdisciplinary model um, on several occasions during the past three years, and I will just uh, present to you uh, some findings to suggest the, the possibility that a model like this, which is relatively robust, could potentially still be cost-effective for a payer and improve, uh, improve uh, quality outcomes. So in this model, uh, a pilot project that was done with one a health plan, uh, we enrolled 644 patients. 163 patients were discharged because they, are, they stabilized or were transferred to hospice. The number of physician or NP home visits in this cohort were 2,218 in one year. The number of social work visits in this cohort was 871, and almost 10,000 telephone calls, either incoming or outgoing, were managed by the telephonic uh, support team. Uh, made up of the trained RNs. Obviously, for the health plan involved in this pilot, the key uh, outcome of interest was whether or not hospitalizations would be reduced. This cohort was uh, a cohort of patients who were generally indigent and uh, had advanced illness. We were able to identify the, uh, the hospitalization number on a monthly basis for the six months prior to the palliative care uh, consultation and for the six months during the care of the, of the interdisciplinary team. And we were able to do this in a hundred of the patients. And what we were able to demonstrate in these data is a decline in the monthly hospitalization rate from pre to post enrollment in palliative care by 87.5%. The potential savings uh, that uh, could be uh, incurred by a reduction of this level amounted to many millions of dollars and more than offset the cost of the program. It's data like this that will drive those payers that are engaged in population health models, health plans, accountable care organizations, patient-centered medical homes, potentially health homes. It is these kind of data that will, will uh, sustain the momentum 
for the kinds of relationships that need to be developed between payers and specialists in palliative care in providing community-based palliative care. Another, another um, uh, plan engaged our organization for a similar type of pilot. And this was a pilot of a group of patients quite different than the uh, prior pilot. These patients were generally elderly and they weren't as sick. There were 147 patients. And in this, um, in this particular analysis, we chose to look at medical loss ratio, a statistic that's very meaningful to health plans. This medical loss ratio evaluates the, um, the expense incurred by the plan over the premium received by the plan. Anything that's over 100 means that the individual patient is uh, costing more than the plan is getting in premiums. Now this is a very uh, interesting, albeit a bit complex, but a very interesting analysis if one looks at MLR and thinks about the importance of the relationship that specialists in palliative care will need to develop with health plans. If you look at the bar at the left, this is the entire sample of 147 patients, and we looked at the MLR in aggregate for the entire group for the three-month period prior to enrollment in palliative care, and we compared it to the MLR for the entire group for the three-month period after enrollment in palliative care. The dots are the mean MLR, and the, uh, and the box and whisker plot demonstrates the interquartile range and the outlier variables. And what you can see is that for the entire group of patients, 147 patients, the decline in the MLR was only about 15-16%. Uh, the, the group saved the money, saved some money for the plan, but it wasn't dramatic. But if one looks at the middle bar, these are all the patients out of the 147 who were referred to us already at a relatively high MLR, an MLR of greater than 130%. All of these patients were costing the plan more than the premiums being received to offset those costs. And you can see if you compare the dots, the mean value of the MLR, it was a much more significant reduction in the MLR from three months before to three months after. Now, if you look at the right bar, those were patients with an MLR greater than 300 at the time they were referred to us. That means that the cost of care for those patients was three times the, the premiums that were received to offset that cost. And again, if you look at the distance between the mean values, you can see that the decline from before to after involvement of palliative care was even greater. Now, I view these data as very preliminary. The numbers are obviously small, but it suggests, it, it, it raises the possibility that one of the ways that we can communicate with the health plans that should become our partners in specialist palliative care is to understand their metric, the MLR, and to help them understand which population of patients who have high MLR will also have high unmet need for palliative care. And in that, in that intersection will likely lie a population in which we can improve the quality of care as well as the cost of care. In this uh, program, uh, we, we had some uh, satisfaction data and other outcome data, and uh, the patients generally were doing very well and were highly satisfied with the program, although, again, these are preliminary data and much more sophisticated outcomes assessment from a clinical perspective needs to be obtained before we can say for sure how palliative care in the community impacts on the multidimensional concerns that form the, uh, the problems that are the 
are the raw materials for palliative care specialists. So who will pay? Who will pay for the growth of specialist palliative care in, as healthcare reform takes hold and moves forward in the future? Clearly hospitals have come to the conclusion, at least, in, at least we can infer that hospitals have come to the conclusion based on the extent to which palliative care has taken hold in the hospital community. Hospitals seem to have come to the conclusion that inpatient palliative care consultation teams do provide a higher quality of care and save the hospital money. And so it's likely that hospitals will continue to support inpatient palliative care services. In the community, however, specialists in palliative care will need to engage every entity involved in managing lives through population health systems. The types of, uh, types of entities uh, that uh, will be interested in palliative care are those that will realize significant reduction in cost by our involvement in the home or in the nursing home. And that would include commercial managed care organizations, accountable care organizations, patient-centered medical homes and health homes, and any organization that may be receiving bundled payments for episodes of care. We in the palliative care community will need to have a much more, a much more detailed and nuanced understanding of both the financial and quality imperatives for health plans if we are going to be successful in integrating the services we provide into the models of care that are financially sustainable for health plans. We'll need to understand where the high cost patients are, how to identify them from the claims data that health plans maintain. We'll need to understand how to access those patients to reach out to them in a way that respects confidentiality and privacy, but still will give us access to the patient. We'll need to have those interactions at the same time that we reach out to the primary care provider and respect the ability of that person to manage the care of the patient uh, primarily. And we'll need to provide care that appropriately matches the needs of the patient with the intensity of the involvement of the team. We don't yet know, if you will, what the dose of palliative care should be in the community in order to yield positive outcomes. My own sense is that the dose will vary from subgroup to subgroup depending on the specific needs. There'll also be, I think, substantial changes in subpopulations that vary by culture, that vary by socioeconomic factors, that vary by location. And all of that remains to be figured out. All of that remains to be evaluated so that we can make hopefully data-driven decisions about how to fashion programs in palliative care that are attractive to payers, but continue to provide high quality care to patients and families living through the challenge of a chronic regressive illness. So what, is the, what are the, the take home messages from the comments today? It's my view that specialist palliative care can reduce illness burden by reducing healthcare costs and because of that, community-based palliative care in particular, but also institution-based palliative care and, of course, hospice, all entities providing specialist palliative care will be winners as healthcare reform takes hold in the United States and we shift from a fee-for-service model to a, a different kind of payment system to provide comprehensive care. Specialist palliative care already is established in hospitals, but, but it will continue to change as more data um, appear, and hopefully uh, we can come to some consensus about what quality programs are in hospital settings and begin to insist that programs in hospital meet minimum quality standards. 
But it's also clear to me that community-based palliative care is now at uh, in its infancy, where hospital-based palliative care was many years ago. And what we'll see over the next period of time is an increasing accretion of data and an increasing, uh, increasingly nuanced understanding of the, of the models of care that will allow us to provide specialist level care that can meet the needs of a diverse population in the home or in the nursing home and provide higher quality of care for patients living through chronic progressive illness through the period of, of active dying and then beyond for the, the, the family. And we'll do that, do that at much less cost than the current healthcare system incurs. A great deal of work is needed to clarify the clinical and economic models for community-based palliative care, but with healthcare form, reform driving the, the process forward, right, predominantly through economic drivers, I'm personally very confident that we're going to be seeing positive change in the near term. So thank you for your attention, and I'd be pleased now uh, to open it up for questions. So one question is, on the different models that we've tested, which do you think has better outcome data, telephonic versus case management versus on-site uh, IDT? Um, the question is difficult, obviously, because you've specifically asked about data. And uh, I really do believe in data, and I believe in rigorous methodologies to acquire data. So I'll be the first to say that we don't yet have the kind of outcomes data necessary to make a judgment. I think that it is likely, however, a reasonable hypothesis would be that the most robust model, a model of an interdisciplinary team providing uh, home-based care with access to telephonic support and 24-7 on-call services, that level of intensity is probably needed by a relatively small subpopulation of patients who are very ill and very complex. We have, it, I think, over the course of time, what we'll be um, developing, and hopefully this will be evidence-based, is a way of, of um, assessing patients in real time repeatedly and then modifying the care plan so that we're matching the patients and the family's needs with the intensity of the involvement in the home um, and, and that this will change over time. It's obvious that in many cases as patients get sicker and sicker, become bedbound and ultimately uh, uh, plan for a home death, the family plans for a home death, the need for more intensive care uh, will, be, will, will occur. Um, I think in that process of assessment and reassessment is also the potential value of a more nuanced and more appropriate use of the hospice benefit. If palliative care is going to work well in the community, I think what we will see at the same time is an increase in hospice utilization and an increase in hospice length of stay. And that the real goal ultimately will be to provide an integrated community-based model that will also be able to coordinate care with inpatient palliative care and inpatient providers of other types. But most of the time, the patient is sick in the community, at home or in the nursing home. And it's there that we'll be able to provide individualized care that changes over the course of time and ultimately transitions the patient, patient to the hospice benefit when the patient is appropriate for the benefit and, uh, and desires it. We have a question that says, how do Medicare and Medicaid pay for palliative care? Well, at the present time, uh, Medicare um, at a federal level only pays for palliative care services through a fee-for-service model. Some of you know, however, that Medicare has now uh, engaged in a Medicare uh, demonstration project 
they will fund about 30 hospice agencies sometime in the next uh, six months or so to provide palliative care upstream from hospice to patients who are otherwise hospice eligible but do not want hospice care or, or otherwise uh, can't access it. And uh, they will, they will um, evaluate the extent to which this upstream palliative care model can perform with a capitated payment. So this is actually, I think, uh, great news and potentially very exciting for how the healthcare system will reform uh, going forward. But Medicare is interested to see how a capitated payment that will pay for all services, such as, the, such as hospice is paid, and such as the health plans are paying specialist level palliative care teams, how that capitated payment upstream from hospice will impact on the quality of care and access to hospice services. Uh, so some of you um, attending this webinar probably have applied for that demonstration. Uh, good luck to everybody. I'm very anxious to, to see um, uh, how it looks as it rolls out. It has the, potential, uh, has the potential, I think, to change the way the government thinks about funding. Now, Medicare funding for uh, palliative care will vary from state to state. In New York, for example, Medicaid fee-for-service has essentially uh, been eliminated or soon will be eliminated altogether. And all patients with special needs who have long-term needs will be moved into uh, managed long-term care plans, including those that are fully integrated with uh, Medicare. And so we are learning how to partner with Medicaid managed care companies in the same way that we're learning how to partner with health plans that don't support the, the uh, care for the poor. Uh, the next question is, how do we manage different cultural groups that do not want home death? Uh, I think it's very important, this is, uh, again, my own uh, personal take on this, uh, that palliative care teams should never impose their own expectations or their own sense of what's best for a patient or family uh, when, it, when it's outside of, uh, of the medical realities. So, um, if patients or families don't prefer home death, then we need to provide them with a place that's safe, where comprehensive care can be provided, and death can occur with comfort and dignity for the patient and support for the family. This is one of the advantages, I think, to a close integration between palliative care programs and hospice programs, because hospice does do this well, either through providing continuous care in the home or providing access to an inpatient unit, uh, we're able to give patients, um, uh, allow patients to die in a protected environment or with greater degree of support than would otherwise be possible. But palliative care increases home death, and my hope is that the data that show that really reflect that that subset of patients who are very ill who want to experience or want to stay at home through the very last phases of the disease, and families who can cope with that are now given the ability to do that because they're getting more support. That stands in contrast to limiting options for patients or families if they don't want to stay at home. That we wouldn't support. Okay, well, I think we have a, we have a couple of more questions, but uh, the, the webinar has run its course. We're at its end. I want to thank all of you for attending. I want to remind you that this is the first of our interprofessional webinar series, which is uh, being uh, produced under the auspices of the new MJHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care. In two weeks at the same time, we'll be presenting the next live webinar. Uh, this webinar will soon be posted 
and you can access this webinar as well as the agenda for all the subsequent webinars this year by tuning into www.mjhspalliativeinstitute.org. Thank you so much for your time.